0: Is there any way in the world that we'd stop mass shootings in America? Well, honestly, I'm a little skeptical, but our next guest is gonna try to show me a little bit of hope here. So it's Mark Fulman, he's written the book, Trigger Points Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America. Mark, welcome to the program. Good to be here,
1: thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely, so Mark, let's do it. You tell me how in the world we're gonna stop these mass shootings cuz I don't see a way.
1: Well, what I focus on with trigger points with the book is is um, a method of community-based violence prevention that I think is potentially a very powerful additional tool we can use to reduce uh, these recurring mass shootings that we see in the country. Obviously, we have an enormous problem with guns and gun violence, and there is a long-running uh, political battle over how to regulate guns in our country. But I think. Many people recognize that we're in a stalemate a lot of the time with that. And um, as I was looking into this problem starting about a decade ago, I became pretty frustrated with that myself, and and was asking the question, you know, what more can we do to try to solve this? It's a complex problem in some ways. You know, what possesses someone to walk into a movie theater and shoot sixty or seventy people, or to go into a school and, and kill first graders? So when I started learning about this method, behavioral threat assessment and and the fact that a number of cases of, of plots were being stopped throughout the country. I thought that was very compelling and and uh, there's a lot of potential there for ways that we can, I think, leverage this approach.
0: Okay, so look, the, the reason of course for my skepticism is because um, our politicians don't seem like they're ever, ever gonna do anything about it. There's a massive, um, Culture in America of violence and celebration of guns—that uh, is inexorably going to lead to massacre after massacre, and it has. And we've had the worst massacres anyone could imagine: children being, children being butchered right in front of our eyes, uh, teachers being shot, Congress being shot, and still our politicians do absolutely nothing. So, Mark,
1: give me the hope. How in the world? Well, what you're saying is is true in large part at the federal level, namely that we've we've seen nothing from Congress in the way of legislation. But in fact at the state and local level over the past decade, there's been a lot of change. Um, the, the problem is, is it goes in both directions. There are states that have uh, um, implemented tighter regulations and done a better job and then there are many states that have further loosened gun regulations. Um, so until we have a national picture that's more uh, standardized, that's not really a way forward. But again, I think this, this method of, of um, prevention that I focus on with the book, I think is very hopeful because you know we have a lot of myths that we tell ourselves. Uh, we just keep recycling them about mass shooters, the, the idea that they're all totally insane and that they just snap and go off the handle as if this is some impulsive act. But that's not true, that's that's never true in any of these cases. When you dig into them, you see that these are planned attacks. This is planned violence over days, weeks, months sometimes. Um, And they're also preceded by a long trail of behavioral warning signs. That's what this field focuses on, that's an opportunity to intervene. So if we kind of demystify what this problem is and sort of set aside all of the Um, entrenched political arguments that we just keep repeating and try to understand this problem better. There is real hope. I mean, I've looked at a lot of cases in the course of writing this book where threat assessment teams have intervened with troubled people who are planning and plotting violence and they've gotten in the way of that constructively and and helped people steer them in a better direction and away from committing an attack like that.
0: So but a a lot of these, especially the younger guys appear to be loners. So. How do you find a loner who's sitting there scribbling, um, you know, their dark thoughts in a corner? Uh, I mean, let alone the fact that of, I think it was in Michigan that happened, where the teachers actually did see it, and then they reported to the the parents, and the parents who had just bought him a gun didn't care at all and let him go back into school. So there's just awful, awful right wing parents in the country uh, who. Uh, celebrate their kids having guns, even if their kids are unstable.
1: But okay, put the parents aside, a lot of them are loners, so how do you find them? Well, so Jenk, that's actually another myth that we have about this problem. The the idea that these are people who just burst out of complete social isolation and aren't detectable, it's simply not true. Um, there are often people around the perpetrators of mass shootings who are, are in a position to see the warning signs. Um, peers. There are many school shootings going back decades, even before Columbine, where uh, numerous kids had a, had a good sense of something coming. And that's true of the case you just mentioned, Oxford High School last November. There were a number of kids who were worried about the perpetrator of that attack. There'd been stuff flying around on social media for weeks, months ahead. There were some uh, peers that he was texting with and sharing videos with. Um, so the question is more about how do we create better awareness of the warning signs and get more of a culture of see something, say something, reporting concerns. So that's how threat assessment cases mostly begin when somebody's freaked out by a kid drawing violent pictures or saying, Hey, I'm gonna bring a gun to school, or saying, Hey, don't come to school this Friday because something big's gonna go down. Um, there are many, many cases like that going back in time in in the research literature of, of this work. And so if we if we understand that better, we have a better chance of getting in the way. The Michigan case is unique in some ways. The the situation with the parents there is quite stark. I mean, I've looked at many cases over the years, and that one is is about as grim as it gets. So, you know, you're up against it there because the parents aren't helpful, and and you know we don't know the full details of that case yet, which will play out in court. But they appeared to even enable his his dangerous trajectory. But then you still have the school system and a potential team in place that could address the threat as well.
0: But Mark, isn't that another problem? And maybe I'm uh, overhyping it and you've studied it. But uh, if you say, if Mark Fullman goes in and says, hey, that kid's got a a troubled history and there's guns in the house. We need to be careful and we should alert the authorities. This is a telltale science, right? If their parents are right wingers, they're going to go nuts, and they're going to say, "How dare you? We have every right to have a gun. We're not going to let you Gestapo take away our most cherished possession and our precious child. He's white. I can't believe you would say this, Mark." And so, how do what do you say to that?
1: Well, I understand the point you're making, and, and politics and, and, and families can get in the way and be a real difficult obstacle in these situations. However, whether it's a school or a workplace, a company with, you know we have many workplace mass shootings in this country too. Institutions, companies, agencies, community organizations have ability to get in the way. They may not be able to go take the gun away from the, the family, but they can say you can't be in the school, they can say we're going to try to get you help, they can try to make a case for um, you know, potential involuntary mental health hold, depending where you are. I mean, again, we get back to the issue of, of variation among states, and so we have a patchwork legal system for this too. But there are tools in place already that allow a school system or allow a workplace to deal with a danger, it's it's not you know a given that those people can just be around and, and have access to weapons and wait and see what happens.
0: Yeah, this could, I, I could see how it would help in some cases. But you're gonna run into a lot of resistance uh, because uh, people don't just admit that their kids have trouble. And it's I keep saying right winger and I'm sure I know you wanna make it nonpartisan. But it's all right wingers and so And if you try to take their guns away, they'll they'll shoot you. They they won't even wait for their kid to shoot you. They'll shoot you. Um, And so it's just it's intractable. And then you make the point about the states. What difference does it make today? Idiot right wingers are saying, oh, there's a Sacramento shooting, but California has tight gun laws. There's no wall between Canada and Nevada and Utah or any other state. Right. And they, I mean it's absurd they could just drive in with all the guns in the world.
1: right. Well, so that's that's the point we were discussing earlier. and I, I think you're right that you know, look, we have seen a rise in political violence in this country in recent years, especially from the far right. I've written about that and covered it quite a lot from Mother Jones. I write about it in the book. Um, another thing that I learned though that's really interesting through the research that I did on this field is that there are many cases where attempts at intervention are met with positive response. Not all of them, but in many cases, these are people who who need help desperately. They're in desperate situations, they may be depressed, suicidal. Angry, but they're responsive to constructive intervention, and there are cases like that both in the workplace and in schools that I chronicle in the book. So there is some hope there. It's not going to happen in every case, but but yeah. you know you're right. It's it's a tough problem.
0: No, and Mark, don't don't get my skepticism the wrong way. I'm super frustrated at politicians, but I'm sure what you're saying would help. And by the way, if it helped to stop what a dozen mass shootings, you'd be saving an, an enormous amount of lives, right? Yes. And I and I believe that it certainly can. And by the way, the FBI does a pretty good job these days of sussing out domestic terrorists. Every time they stop a, a plot, uh, I give them credit for it. Which is, you know, on a left-wing channel saying, "Hey, look, the FBI is doing pretty well." Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so I can see how if you applied that in this situation, it would certainly help some. But I got to ask you one more thing before we leave. You said they're not nuts, and so nuts is kind of a you know, it doesn't really mean anything, right? But right. I can't help but think that they're crazy, whether it's a Muslim fundamentalist terrorist, um, and I'm Muslim and I, you know, I tell people a billion times over that's just a random dude out of 1.6 billion people, right? Or it's a it's a Christian fundamentalist or a right wing, or just a rando, right? Um,
1: so if they're not nuts, what are they? Yeah, no, it's a great point. I mean, I think we see them that way in a lay sense because what they're doing is nuts. We can't relate to it. How how on earth can someone go do this, right? Um, it's hard to understand or we we treat it as what we call you know senseless tragedies but but the point is is that we can make sense of them that that a lot of these people are acting rationally in the sense that they develop an idea to carry out violence and then they they plan it and they and they do it and so in that sense they aren't they aren't insane it's we, we tend to think of that as oh these are people who are hearing voices telling them to go out and commit a mass murder aliens are in their head or whatever but that's just simply not the case in most of these these cases that The forensics show that these are people who don't in many cases don't have clinically diagnosable mental illness. I mean, they're certainly mentally unhealthy. They have behavioral and mental health problems, but many people do. So then the question becomes, what is it that that defines the behavioral pattern leading up to these attacks? And if we can understand that better, if we can see those warning signs, we can intervene before it's too late. That's the real hope of the work in this field. And, And there are a lot of cases where it's worked well. So I see it as a real additive solution here. It's not gonna fix the problem in and of itself, but neither is the continued battle over gun laws because we see where that we've gotten with that for decades now, right? It's both and more. Yeah. Uh, we've gotten uh, Republican cruelty and democratic
0: incompetence. So you're right, that's not an avenue that's that's worked out very well and And you're also right about the crazy because crazy, my definition of it is detached from reality. and they're attached enough to reality that they plan that's right. uh, and they take action in the physical world so uh, and then action has consequence. so so they're not detached from reality. I think the issue is more they've become attached to, um, toxic anger. And that's what we have to study more.
1: There's a lot of that and we have a lot of that going on more now in our politics and culture, for sure.
0: Absolutely. All right, Mark Fullman, the book
1: is trigger points
0: inside the mission to stop mass shootings in America. Thank you for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. You guys want to meet a real progressive who has an excellent chance of winning? Good news, I got one for you, Doyle Canning. Uh, she's running in Oregon's fourth congressional district, uh, and we're going to explain why she has such a good chance of winning. Doyle, welcome to the show.
2: It's great to be here with you, Jen. Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, no problem. So you ran against yes, Pete DeFazio last time. Uh, he's the incumbent Democrat, uh, and that district got even more blue in the redistricting. Uh, so. Uh, Defazio had an explanation for for why he's stepping down. He said, it's so blue, you don't need me to protect anymore. Uh, Later, he changed his mind on that, which I'll explain to the audience, okay? But he is stepping down. Uh, He just changed his mind about how blue the district was. Apparently, we're gonna get to that because it's a hilarious hypocrisy. Uh, But so uh, I assume since you already ran and you've got a lot of support behind you, and you're doing a lot of grassroots fundraising. The Democratic Party rolled out the red carpet and said, "Doyle, you obviously you're, you're next in line because they do next in line, right?" Uh, and they welcomed you with open arms, right? Not
2: exactly. It will come as no surprise to viewers of The Young Turks. You know, the Democratic establishment here in Oregon, just like in many states or in in the Congress itself, you know, it's a very closed circle. And and I was in fact told. To wait my turn, 10, 15 years, Um, I I should wait. But the, the reality is that our climate can't wait. The IPCC put out yet another report just today showing that it is absolutely imperative, urgent. We are absolutely out of time to transition our economy off of fossil fuels, to rescue a stable climate future. That's why I'm running, that's why I'm in this fight. And it's really great to be here with you talking about how we're gonna win.
0: Waiting 10, 15 years years—it's the most nonsensical thing I've ever heard. What happens magically in 15 years from now where you're allowed to be a candidate? And I guarantee you, they'll say, "Oh, good, it's too late now. So you could run if you like, but you're not gonna win. Um, so they don't want you to run when you could win. Uh, look Doyle, uh, Oregon is in a lot of ways a very blue state. And certainly in the area that you're running. And there's the image of Portlandia and all of that, right? But if we can't get progressive, democratic leadership in that state, Jesus, what hope does anybody have? So you're telling us that Oregon's Democratic Party is also against progressives, generally speaking.
2: Well, my opponent in this race, who announced her candidacy within uh, two hours, I think it was, of uh, Congressman DeFazio announcing his retirement, you know, is has been patronized for for many many years. By the fossil fuel industry, Um, billionaires like Michael Bloomberg, even big tobacco. You know, that is very much how she built her political career. And and now she's running uh, for Congress here in a district that strongly favors progressives. You know, this is an area where Senator Sanders in 2016 really romped to victory, double digit margins in every county. This is an area of the country that has very strong environmental values. Medicare for all polls in Oregon across party lines at 75%. This is an area of the country where we can and must retain our seat in Congress in the progressive, uh, progressive caucus and, and fight to advance Medicare for all and the Green New Deal. Uh, unfortunately, my, my opponent is uh, endorsed by the centrist caucus, the New Democrats. That's why it's so urgent that the progressive movement get behind my campaign, send contributions put in the hours on the ground, door knocking, phone banking, whatever you can do to support, this is this is a race we can and must win.
0: Yeah, so you you have an excellent chance of winning it. And uh and my guess though is and I'm curious because I really don't know. And I hope I'm wrong about it. Uh but there's no reason in the world where local press in an area that progressive with the candidate who's more likely to win, that's you. Um, and that it fits the 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 policies better, shouldn't be at least neutral to the race and shouldn't point out that your opponent is backed by big tobacco, big oil, et cetera, right? Um, but my guess is if they're like the press anywhere else in the country, they probably favor her instead of you.
2: Well, you make an excellent point. You know, just last week, uh, uh, environmental coalition spearheaded by a group called Climate Hawks Vote did poll this district uh, and my candidacy, and they uh, sent out a press release about the findings and said the race is undecided. 55% of voters are undecided. The Oregonian took that result and made a headline saying, you know, that my opponent is 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 winning by a large margin. So, <laughs> there you go. Um, you know, yeah. this race is very much up for grabs. Um, this is a race that uh is very unsettled at the moment, and we're running a strong a strong grassroots campaign, first out in the field knocking doors, you know, doing everything we can to talk with voters. And when I'm on the doors talking with voters, they're saying, "Hey, we're we're already supporting you, or by the time we leave the conversation, you know, they're supporting. So this there's a lot of appetite for my candidacy and a lot of grassroots support.
0: Yeah, see. yeah, I mean, it's classic press. the minute the Democratic establishment tells them they have a favored candidate, the press feels like it's their job to support that candidate twenty four seven, no matter what. So when you say they're funded by big oil, big tobacco, I guarantee you, members of the press will be more offended that you're saying that than the fact that she's funded by big oil and big tobacco. They're like, oh yeah, of course you want to kill the planet, kill people. You're awesome. That's a great. Hey, you're leading in the fundraising, right? What a great candidate. Oh, you're trying to save the planet. Boo, no. And you're being so rude by pointing out how corrupt she is. All right, which leads us to Pete Defazio because. You know, look, I, as you might be able to tell, I don't have much respect for Democratic leadership. Um, they know that. I know that. They're not overly fond of me. Uh, I'm not overly fond of them because uh, they're humiliating and they suck um, at their jobs. Okay. So that's my opinion. Uh, but I had in the back of my head Pete DeFazio as, like, huh, I think he's kind of progressive adjacent, right? And it turns out, no. He comes out and after saying he's retiring because the district's plenty blue, he comes and endorses your opponent and says, "Oh well, we don't want to lose to a Republican." Wait, I thought you said it was plenty blue and that's why you were retiring. What a hilarious lie! Like it's in. By the way, in the article I read, it's in the same article. They're like DeFazio retiring because so the seat is safe. Pete DeFazio says, "Make sure you don't vote for the progressive because the seat is not safe." So. I don't know, Is like for old school Democrats, are there any of them that were ever progressive? It, I mean, I, I, is DeFazio like a corporate goon and I didn't know it?
2: Well, look, Congressman DeFazio was a co-founder of the Congressional Progressive Caucus with Bernie Sanders and Maxine Waters way back in what, the late 80s. Um, that was a long time ago. You know the district has changed since he was elected to Congress in 1986. That's the last time we had an open primary here, 36 years ago when I was in kindergarten. Um, and so, you know, a lot has changed with the redistricting, but also just <laughs> in the world <laughs> in the last 40 years. And so, you know, I think it's a good time um, for a, a a new representative. That's why I'm running. We need a strong champion who is connected. To the constituency who understands the challenges of raising a family in this district today where we have one of the tightest housing markets in the country. We have the highest rate of homelessness in in the country per capita in Eugene, Oregon. Um, And we've lived through these devastating wildfires, heat domes, climate disasters over the last few years. We can't wait for change, that's why I'm running. I'm a strong progressive Have spent 20 years as a community organizer, environmental attorney. I've worked (laughs) alongside the progressive members of Congress uh, to advance our priorities there. Now I'm ready to do that on behalf of the people of Oregon's fourth district.
0: Yeah, no, I knew there was a reason why I thought DeFazio was progressive. So because he was back in 1986 Uh, and it's just so heartbreaking. To see what money does to people. Um, So because I read what he uh, said about you and it didn't have anything to do about you with you Doyle. Uh, He's like, "Oh, progressives, they're not practical enough. What happened to you, man? Jesus Christ, what happened to you? So Doyle, I gotta ask, is voting with 75% of your voters like you would with on Medicare for All, is that not practical? Why is that not practical?
2: I guess perhaps it's not practical if you're cashing checks for your campaign from the pharmaceutical industry, the health insurance industry, you know, the lobbyists who who benefit from from the status quo. You know, I uh, lost my mom uh, to lupus. She had a chronic condition. You know, she had lost her job, lost her insurance. She died within two years, and that's why I'm in this fight. For Medicare for all. This isn't, um, you know, some kind of hypothetical problem. This is this is a real urgent crisis for the people of this country. As you know, as the watchers of this show, very very uh, very much understand. And Medicare for all is popular, especially in Oregon. You know, seventy-five percent across party lines—Republicans, Independents, Democrats—everyone knows that we need a universal health care system. Um, and why isn't it getting done? because of the ways that corporate money has polluted our politics in Congress. And that's why I'm in this fight and why I am running to champion Medicare for all.
0: Apparently it created climate change within Pete DeFazio's mind um, and uh, changed the climate in there. Anyways, uh, Doyle didn't say any of that stuff, I'm just angry at him uh, for uh, unfortunately, the, the transition that he's had, um, all right, uh, Doyle, uh, I'm gonna guess you're not taking corporate PAC money.
2: That's correct, not a single cent.
0: Okay, well, well then, which donors will you be beholden to, I'm confused.
2: <laughs> well, the people of Oregon's fourth district and, and progressive activists all over the country, You know, we're very proud. We just finished our first quarter, our first uh, big fundraising deadline, we had 1,300 contributions. We're looking to double that in the next two weeks. This election is in 43 days. So this is a short fuse, this is a sprint for our movement. It's one that we can win if we are able to mount the most aggressive and uh, proactive campaign possible. As I said, we're out knocking doors, we're sending mail, we're doing all the things, uh, but we need your support. So if you're watching this, you're inspired, you wanna send a climate champion to Congress, in, instead of a, a fossil fuel Democrat, which you know we've all seen the ways that Senator Manchin has completely sabotaged cl- the climate agenda in Congress. You know we cannot afford another corporate Democrat beholden to the fossil fuel industry in the United States Congress at this time, with the urgency of the climate emergency. That's why I'm running. If you want to support me, canningforcongress.com. We need your support today.
0: Yeah. Uh- in a district that blue and that concerned about the environment, it would be nuts to send a corporate Democrat taking checks from fossil fuel companies. Insane. Yeah. And the, defy- uh, the you know, lever,
2: the-, the former uh, Daily Poster, put out a piece just today. It just went up, you know, that kind of chronicles the the uh, <laughs> the many years of contributions from the biggest pipeline company that was operating in Oregon. They were trying to build. A frack gas pipeline across our state. You know, my opponent was cashing checks from the pipeline company while I was standing side by side with the landowners who who were going to lose their ranches to this pipeline, with the tribes and climate activists who, and fishermen who were fighting to to save the Oregon coast from this massive fossil fuel project. You know, we were on different sides of that fight. We're on different different sides of this primary now, and you know, it's a clear choice. Send the environmental champion not the one who was cash, cashing checks from from the fossil fuel company for the last uh, decade.
0: Well, cashing checks from pipelines is very practical. It practically screws you over. Um, so uh, don't do it. Doyle Canning uh, is an honest person running without any corporate PAC money and is a progressive. Uh, In a very winnable race, it would be great to have another progressive in Congress. It's totally possible when there's no incumbent like in Oregon's fourth district, canningforcongress.com. Doyle, thank you for joining us, appreciate it. You are so welcome, thank you.